May, 1970. A bulldozer muscles its way through the dense mangroves and cocoa plum on the northwest corner of Key Biscayne. Amid the din of the growling engine, great knots of thick foliage crack and crunch as they are felled before its blades and flattened beneath its tracks, then shoved into a heap to await disposal. The machine works at the direction of the Dade County Parks Department. It is making way for the new Crandon Park golf course. Suddenly, the clang of the bulldozer blade against a large solid object rings out, causing the operator to bring his machine to a halt. Climbing down to investigate, he finds that his bulldozer has struck something resembling a large tombstone, toppled over and completely overgrown, here, in the seemingly untouched wetlands. The county surveyor is called in to investigate, and as the roots and mud are carefully removed, the true nature of the artifact is revealed. A three-foot-tall, 800-pound obelisk of granite, 16 inches square at the base, bearing the appearance of a highly professional piece of work. On each of its four sides is engraved the following inscription. U.S. Coast Survey, A.D. Beach, Superintendent. North Base Number 7, 1855. Welcome to the Story of Miami. Episode 14, Taking Measure. As the great march of progress continued across the United States, the benefits of better infrastructure and control of nature became a focus of U.S. efforts. South Florida was no exception, for indeed, if it was destiny that this exotic tropical land be populated with Americans, it became clear during the years of the Seminole Wars that destiny needed a little help. Under these auspices, a handful of elaborate public works projects began to take shape during the mid-1800s. The first steps towards their execution began with a pair of surveys, measurements of the land and the sea, which brought a whole new level of exactness to things. Today, we take a moment to nerd out just a bit and discuss these two projects, as well as the larger schemes into which they played carried out by some of the first men of measures to take up the challenge of Biscayne country, their efforts will have enormous impact on the evolution of Dade County and, indeed, the nation. The first of these projects addressed the need we alluded to in our previous episode, the lack of a land survey, which made implementation of the Armed Occupation Act virtually impossible. The act called for a transfer of massive quantities of real estate to the private ownership of settlers, but there was no way to convey those lands without clearly defined property lines. As we have seen, when the U.S. government gained control of new territory, it did its best to honor any pre-existing titles. This had been the case, for example, with the Egan donation on the north and south side of the Miami River which had been deeded to the Bahamian John Egan by the Spanish. 
and which we have since seen pass to James Egan, then Richard Fitzpatrick, then William English, then Harriet English. But such cases were flukes, rare exceptions to the rule. Of the millions of square miles that the U.S. came to possess, the vast majority were populated only by Native Americans, who did not share the white man's theories of property. There were no parcels and no existing titles. Thus, a system was necessary for dividing up and transferring enormous quantities of public land to private owners for settlement. The Public Land Survey System, or PLSS, was established immediately after the American Revolution for precisely this purpose, and is still in use to this day, relatively unchanged. Much easier to work with than the traditional meets and bounds methodology, which demarcates boundaries using descriptions of the land's physical features, the PLSS simply divides the land into a great big grid. The primary grid unit is called a survey township and measures six miles on a side for a total of 36 square miles. A survey township is further subdivided into 36 sections, each one mile per side and one square mile in area. Within a section, land can be parceled off in even smaller parts, such as 160-acre quarter sections, the unit prescribed by the Armed Occupation Act, which, under ideal conditions, is a perfect square exactly one-half mile on each side. With the urgent need for defined boundaries in Florida, the survey of the peninsula was soon underway. Surveyor George McKay was among those dispatched to undertake the painstaking process, and over the course of several years, he and his men made their way slowly and systematically down the state, chopping it up into innumerable neat little squares as they went. The surveyor's tools of the day included a sextant to determine latitude, a well-tuned clock or chronometer to determine longitude, a surveyor's compass to find direction, and a surveyor's chain to measure distance. McKay's instruments would have been of the finest quality, and his process of the utmost rigor, in order to deliver to the government measurements of the highest possible accuracy. Trudging through the Florida backwoods and swamps, repeatedly pulling out the chain in as straight and level a line as possible, the McKay expedition metered out and staked off the corners of each township and section they surveyed. Once a township was completely surveyed, an official drawing was produced, with each section and quarter section clearly delineated. This type of drawing, a map with the legal boundaries of property indicated, is known as a plat. It is the foundation of all real estate transactions in the United States. Though McKay's plats produced parcels up to a square mile in size, we will see in later episodes that a plat is generally required for the sale of any parcel, large or small. In 1845, McKay finally sailed into Biscayne Bay and spent several weeks here carrying out the surveys of townships 53 and 54 south and 41 and 42 east. 
within which the heart of Miami and much of the surrounding city is found. The plats he produced on this visit form the basis for all real estate transactions that have taken place here ever since. If you want to check out the plat for yourself, visit storyofmiami.com, where we've posted them on this episode's page. Now, though these surveys meant that homesteaders could finally pursue a land claim under the Armed Occupation Act, the work caused not a little bit of consternation and dismay. The borders of the parcels that were created passed straight through some existing squatters' homesteads, splitting these poor frontier families' land into separate pieces. And sometimes, placing one person's home, farm, or kunti mill on their neighbor's property. These effects led to quite a few angry letters, with homesteaders firing off bitter missives to the land office in St. Augustine, kindly requesting that they take their survey and shove it. Unfortunately, they were rarely obliged. The public land survey system is a fascinating piece of American history having left its imprint blanketed across the national landscape. It is, for example, the reason for the endless perfect grids of farmland one sees when flying over the Great Plains, which are typically either sections or quarter sections. But this system has made a major impact on our urban landscape as well, as it is the basis upon which many American cities built their street grid, Miami is a classic case study. Here, many of the earliest roads were first laid down as, quote, section line roads, running along the borders between the one square mile sections at the edges of homesteaders' properties. Later, as the area became more urbanized, the sections and quarter sections were further subdivided, sold off in parcels, and filled in with more streets and buildings while the original section roads transformed into major thoroughfares. Calle Ocho, Coral Way, Bird Road, Miller, Sunset, these are all section line roads, each almost exactly one mile from the next. Halfway between these, quarter section roads, also typically high traffic routes, mark the borders of the original 160-acre land grants that were transferred to Miami-area homesteaders under the Armed Occupation Act and other later Homestead Acts. Despite his best efforts, the tools and methods available to George McKay way back in 1845 were not as exact as they are today, and inevitably, small errors appeared in the lines he drew. The result is a variety of oddities and quirks in our modern urban landscape, sections that are not quite square and streets that are not quite straight. If we look closely, for example, at the street grid around Westchester and FIU, we might describe some of these sections as being more hmm, parallelograms or trapezoids. At Kendall Drive, we find the border of one of the larger grid units, a 36-square-mile survey township, along which some major error-correcting was necessary. To the south of Kendall Drive, we see almost every major avenue suddenly shift several hundred feet to the west. These not-quite-perfect townships 
are also the reason for the not-quite-perfectly-straight borders of today's Miami-Dade County. All this due to land surveys that were carried out more than 170 years ago. One other curiosity lies 400 miles away, in quiet Cascades Park in Tallahassee. There, a stone marker bearing a plaque with two axes on it marks the intersection of the Tallahassee Meridian and Baseline. It is the origin, or starting point, for the grid with which the entire state of Florida was surveyed. One story has it that this stone was originally intended to be placed a couple hundred feet further east, but it fell off the wagon en route and was too heavy to load back up, so there it stayed. Now, while this story is most likely apocryphal, the fact remains. If this stone had been placed 200 feet further east, so too would have been every street and property line in Miami. More or less. McKay found much of the Florida interior impenetrable. The Everglades, in particular, was well beyond his abilities to accurately measure, and south of Lake Okeechobee, he platted only the townships along the coast. More progress would be made over time, but the state would not be fully surveyed and parceled off until well into the 20th century. Nevertheless, with the coast of Biscayne Bay platted, homesteads could now be claimed with reasonable confidence under the Armed Occupation Act. While the rate of claims did increase, the law still failed to spur the amount of development intended. The journey to the extremities of Florida remained far too difficult and dangerous for the average pioneer, and again and again, the ongoing seminal troubles drove away those who tried. By now, with the experiences of the land surveyors and the settlers adding to those of the soldiers and officers in the Seminole Wars, some major undertakings were beginning to shimmer like a tantalizing vision in the imaginations of Florida's leadership. With the goal of solving some of the most confounding obstacles to settlement and profitability, two ambitious undertakings in particular were conceived of during this time. The first was the construction of an inland waterway down the length of Florida's east coast. The benefits of the idea had first been noted during the Second Seminole War, when transports had used the many large coastal lagoons and rivers to carry supplies to the forts that dotted the shore. The major protected bodies of water down the coast were the St. John's and Matanzas Rivers, the Halifax River, the Mosquito and Indian River Lagoons, the Lake Worth Lagoon, and Biscayne Bay. Protected from the open ocean behind narrow barrier islands, these waterways offered shelter to ships traveling up and down the coast, but they were not connected to each other, and getting in, out, and between them required frequent unloading and reloading of cargo at so-called haulovers, where supplies were tediously hauled a short distance overland. Now, if, instead, these waterways could be connected by canals, transportation along the coast would become drastically easier, cheaper, and safer. The first such canal was dredged in 1845 
between Mosquito Lagoon and Indian River Lagoon near Cape Canaveral, and indeed was put into extensive use during the Third Seminole War. The idea that emerged then was to dredge canals connecting all the coastal rivers and lagoons in order to open up a shipping lane all the way from Jacksonville to Key West that completely avoided the reef and was shielded not only from storms and waves, but from any potential enemy navies to boot. With settlement also a priority, the prospect of civilians being able to travel to the furthest reaches of Florida only added to the idea's allure. The second project envisioned during this time was the drainage of the interior of Florida, and in particular, the Everglades. The reports of surveyors like McKay drove home the point that this land was impossible to develop. In a time before the delicate balance of nature was well understood, it seemed like a straightforward proposition that if only some canals could be cut to unplug the swamps, the water would drain into the sea and open up millions of acres of rich and prosperous land. The stable population this would finally bring to Florida, and the unspeakable riches that could be made by whoever succeeded in the undertaking, meant that the idea quickly caught on. In 1850, Congress granted more than 20 million acres of federal wetlands to Florida, mostly in the Everglades, so that the state could get to work on the enterprise. Thus, Florida had two massive civil engineering projects in its sites, coastal canals and drainage canals. But rather than tackle them directly, the state instead sought to attract bold and innovative entrepreneurs to take up the challenge. If anyone succeeded in dredging the required canals, the state would award them the untold quantities of lands that were opened up. It was a powerful incentive program, and its management was overseen by a new department, the Internal Improvement Fund of the State of Florida. In coming episodes, we will see one of these projects, in fits and starts, carried painstakingly through to completion. The tortured history of the other, however, will be with us throughout our story. The consequences of its naive attempt haunting us to this very day. With events on land thoroughly mapped out, we turn now to another survey, one which took place mostly in the sea. The treacherous Gulf Stream shipping lane of the Florida coast continued to claim vast quantities of valuable cargo, due in large part to the still poorly charted reef. Though shipwrecks were the lifeblood of the South Florida economy, the situation was costing the national economy millions in annual losses, and was a cause of great consternation for America's Caribbean and South and Central American trading partners, who also relied on this all-important channel. Between 1844 and 1846, as many as 50 wrecks a year were occurring on the reef. As historian James Tillman writes, quote, the mounting losses produced Florida's first insurance crisis, which included skyrocketing rates. The cost of insuring against losses on a passage through the straits approached, and sometimes exceeded, that for longer and by all rights more dangerous voyages, 
such as from New York to Rio de Janeiro or San Francisco or China, end quote. In 1849, the United States Coast Survey was dispatched to these waters with the goal of accurately and comprehensively charting the coast and the reef once and for all. The first scientific institution created by the U.S. government, the U.S. Coast Survey was an altogether different type of enterprise than the land survey. Rather than simply drawing abstract property lines, this was a topographic survey, whose goal was to precisely measure the natural contours of the coast, its navigable waters, and indeed the three-dimensional shape of the world itself a field of study known as geodesy. Under the leadership of Superintendent Alexander Dallas Bache, a pioneer of American science, this trailblazing institution incorporated cutting-edge advances in measurements and standardizations of weights and measures, and even compared to the land survey, was a much more exacting and scientific undertaking. To get the project underway, Preliminary work was carried out by Assistant Superintendent of the Survey, Francis Curtis, who began by touring the coast and its waterways and making several rough maps of the area, which are today of great value to historians. He drew, for example, the location of English's stone buildings at the mouth of the Miami River and of Ferguson's Mill at the river's source. Interestingly, of the spit of land today known as Miami Beach, he wrote, quote, The mainland, above Cape Florida, runs down into a sharp point from the head of Key Biscayne Bay to Narrows Cut, or Norris Cut, which separates it from Virginia Key. This spit is in fact the first island itself, and ought to be counted as such. It is covered with wood, has a fine beach, and is about eight or ten miles long, and one-half or one-mile wide, end quote. With his initial investigations complete, Gertis and his team returned in 1855 to begin the actual survey itself. The process relied on the technique of triangulation. By taking very precise measurements of the angles between distant points, the basic mathematics of triangles could then be used to calculate the intervening distances, thus eliminating the error-prone process of measuring those distances directly, as McKay had done. However, in order for triangulation to work, one extremely accurate length measurement was required with which to start. Known as a baseline, the exact location of two points and the distance between them would be necessary. Reviewing the options for the best place to establish this line, Gertis settled on Key Biscayne, one of the few places along the entire reef that gave him both a long enough stretch of solid earth and clear lines of sight to other nearby points on the coast. The measurement of the Key Biscayne baseline was a tremendous undertaking, requiring highly disciplined scientists and engineers and a small army of contract laborers hired from Key West. First, a straight line had to be cleared through the thick vegetation of Key Biscayne, punishing work on the notoriously hot and mosquito-ridden island. 
The result was a surreal 16-foot-wide, three-mile-long corridor, through which one could see straight across the quay, from the southern endpoint near the lighthouse to the northern endpoint in what is today Crandon Golf Course. Once the line was cleared, the actual measurement could commence. Over the course of several days, a pair of agate-tipped metal measuring tubes, whose precise lengths were painstakingly verified down to a fraction of a millimeter, were laid gingerly end-to-end in a leapfrog fashion down the length of the island, mounted atop a trestle-like contraption covered with levels and clamps. The trestles were built to ensure the line remained perfectly straight as it went, and that the tubes were not bumped or jostled, which could jeopardize an entire day's work. For this delicate and critical process, Superintendent Bache personally supervised the work, which took a week and a half to complete. Upon its completion, 965 tubes had been laid, and an official measurement of 3.597 miles was recorded. Hefty granite base markers were placed precisely at its endpoints to pinpoint the exact location from which further measurements of angles could be started. And 115 years later, long after the foliage had grown back in and all evidence of this fastidious effort had disappeared, the northern base marker would be uncovered by a bulldozer making way for a golf course. With the base markers placed, the work of surveying the reef could now begin in earnest. The following months saw the rapid triangulation of the whole region, with points on the coast as well as on the underwater rocks of the reef being charted all the way down to Key West to within a tolerance of mere inches. But the advancements made by Beach, Gertis, and the U.S. Coast Survey did not stop at triangulation. As the government's only scientific institution at the time, its mandate encompassed all manner of observations in astronomy, magnetism, meteorology, and hydrology, all with the aim of making the navigable waters of the United States safer for shipping. Throughout the rest of the 1800s, Coast Survey ships would be a regular presence in the waters of the Florida Straits, and as they sailed to and fro, they filled in the map with detailed measurements of depths, currents, and magnetic deviations. The charts resulting from this work allowed much safer navigation of the Florida coast, and its use as a shipping route boomed. The U.S. Coast Survey is the progenitor of such practical standards as the red-right return system of navigational buoys with which every Miami boater is familiar. It is also the ancestor of many of our modern scientific institutions, including the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, a leader in developing global scientific and industry standards, as well as the National Atmospheric and Oceanic Administration, or NOAA, which, among other things, oversees the National Hurricane Center, each year helping Miamians plan and prepare as we face down our frightful storms. The survey was also among the first to conclusively demonstrate the ever-changing nature of our coastlines. 
when surveyors came back to check on the Key Biscayne baseline in the 1870s, for example, they found the southern base marker, which had been placed south of the lighthouse, was now three feet offshore and underwater, indicating that the island's southern tip was being slowly scoured away. Today, the waterline has encroached to mere feet from the foot of the lighthouse, which would soon crumble into the sea if it weren't for the man-made seawall that has since been put in place. The monitoring of the evolving coast is an ongoing project of the Coastal Survey, which today is known as the National Geodetic Survey. Its modern coastal survey markers can often be found hidden in plain sight throughout Miami's seaside areas. Though the risk to individual ships was now reduced, the corresponding increase in traffic meant that local wreckers still had a steady flow of business. More improvements were needed to truly eliminate the threat of the reef, and attention now turned to the old lighthouse system. Despite being rebuilt and raised, the Cape Florida Lighthouse, like all land-based lighthouses along the Keys, was barely visible from the rocks of the reef itself and thus had never really served its purpose very well. A better understanding of the underlying structure of the coral reef and new advancements in construction methods meant that plans were slowly taking shape to build an entirely new lighthouse system, one built out in the sea upon the rocks themselves. Though the signs of a changing world are all around us, to the scattered inhabitants of South Florida, the surveyors and scientists that appeared briefly on our shores were but blips against a ceaseless solitude. With the end of the Third Seminole War in 1858, the residents of Dade County, barely hanging on, turned their hopes once again to the future and the undeniable destiny of this remarkable landscape. But a debate that has raged since the country's founding is reaching a boiling point, and there is one final upheaval on the horizon, a bloody calamity of unprecedented proportions that will shake the very foundations of what America stands for and threaten to tear the entire nation apart.